Well, I want to encourage you to turn uh, this morning to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Psalms. And I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 1. So Psalm uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. Um, this is not the beginning of a study through all 150 chapters of Psalms, by the way. Uh, but I want to draw your attention to verses, uh, especially 1 and 2, but I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. And let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for the the time together already this morning and just uh, being able to unify our hearts around the great and glorious God that you are and just the privilege of worshiping you and praising you. I thank you for each one that is here. And uh, Lord, as we would uh, turn our attention to this part of your word, I would again pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to be pleasing to thee and to communicate your word in a way that reflects its character and its nature. And I, again, would pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us understanding and give us insight so that we would not just understand your word. I pray it would truly be helpful in our own understanding of the nature of the Christian life and truly helpful in our own progress in the faith and our growth and grace in our time here. And so just we commit it to thee and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our, uh, our series of studies, um, actually several sermons. Uh, the common theme is not preaching through a book of the Bible. And so we're, we're continuing that this morning for a little bit longer. And I want to draw your attention to some very well-known verses in the Psalms. This is really a classic section, I think, about the centrality and importance of meditation. Is really has a greatly needed spiritual grace. And I want to take uh, verses 1 and 2 collectively. And the theme, I think, that unites verses 1 and 2 is the characteristics of a godly man, or the characteristics of a godly woman. There's a twofold description here. As Matthew Henry puts it, uh, the psalmist begins with the character and condition of a godly man. So it's a description uh, of the godly man. You might have uh, read, like in a missing persons report, the description of someone physically, and it will give their height and their weight and their age, their hair color, maybe their eye color. This is a, a spiritual description of the godly man or the godly woman. And Matthew Henry wrote, The Lord knows those that are his by name, but we must know them by their character. And so here, uh, the godly man is described in two ways, two characteristics. The first one is negative, and the second one is positive. Negatively, he's known by his renunciation. Uh, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Positively, he's known by his preoccupation. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And what we've noticed before, you see the same kind of pattern in Scripture. I think it's helpful, especially in terms of our sanctification, how we think about sanctification. There's a positive statement, but it's preceded by a negative one. Another helpful example would be the New Testament. 
uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, a, a great text about our relationship to the Word. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. But it's preceded by the negative, therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So you, you see the same kind of pattern repeated in Scripture. Now, for a Christian believer, the weighty motivation for putting these two directives into practice uh, that we have just read about verses 1 and 2. The, the, the weighty motivation is that this is, the, this is the means of being a truly blessed or a happy person. Uh, we saw in the Beatitudes, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the Scripture uh, speaks much about how to be truly happy, which I, I think everyone truly desires. It doesn't fit uh, the way in which the world would describe it. Um, but because... Um, True happiness, it's always a function of, of knowing God and being right related, right related to the being of God. Because that is true, we find texts like Psalm 32, 1, how blessed, how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed or how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So to be, to be reconciled to God and to have communion with him, First, you have to have the assurance of forgiveness of sins, which is true for anyone who has an interest, a living interest in the person of Christ. And we have texts like Psalm 40 and verse 4, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, or Psalm 34, 8, how blessed, how happy is the man who takes refuge in him, or Psalm 112, 1, praise the Lord, how blessed, how happy is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So, so happiness is a function of knowing God and being right related to God and communing with him. J. Alexander wrote this book, opens with an exquisite picture of the truly happy man as seen from the highest ground of the old dispensation. He then comments on the significance of the fact that this term blessed, it's in the plural. He says the plural form of the original, if anything in our language, may denote fullness and variety of happiness as if he had said how completely happy is the man. And to that, a plumber in his work on Psalms wrote, the word translated blessed is in the Hebrew plural, while the word translated, while the word rendered man is singular. It is well to give all the fullness of meaning which the grammatical construction and the analogy of faith will allow. However, tried and afflicted, every servant of God has vast treasures of good things in possession and in prospect. Both the psalmist and the Savior begin their teachings with pronouncing blessedness to the portion of God's people. And along the same lines, the Lutheran commentator H.C. Leupold uh, wrote, The very happy state of the man whose life has right roots is about to be described. Uh, the Hebrew expresses the superlative by a plural of intensity, happiness of the man. This gives the statement the, the force of an exclamation, which would be very nearly approximated by our, oh, how very happy is the man. For the plural, blessed literally means full measure of the happy circumstances. So the, the grammar here reveals the, the depth and fullness of this happiness or the incomparableness of this kind of blessed blessedness because its source is rooted in the being of of God in his holy, unchangeable perfections and his nature. So this morning, 
I just simply want you to consider with me these two characteristics of the, the godly man or the godly woman. And, of course, it's what you and I aspire to, for them to be operative in our own lives as well. So in the first place, I want you to notice his or her renunciation. We might say constant renunciation. That's verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Leupold comments on the inclusion of this negative language to begin with. He said, it need not strike us as strange that this happiness is first pictured in terms of negatives. What such a man will not do, for as has been rightly observed, wrong conduct in most manifold forms surrounds us on every hand. And we're continually under the necessity of taking a position over against it. In other words, the need for this negative language is most of us, we're surrounded by wrong conduct on all sides, at least to some degree, most of our lives. And we need to know, well, how do you respond to that? Uh, It can be in the workplace, it can be in the classroom, it can be um, in the neighborhood, and it can even be in our family. So how do you respond to that? And so uh, under this first heading, a help to this renunciation, there's... um, Three responses to evildoers. Three responses to evildoers. First of all, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That's number one. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Walk is a behavior term. It's a conduct term to live in a specialized manner. J.A. Alexander kind of elaborates. He says it's a common figure of the course of life, of the habitual conduct, which is furthermore suggested by the use of the past tense, but without excluding the present, who has not walked and does not walk in the council, um, live after the manner or the principles or according to the plans of wicked men. So walk here, it's a conduct term. It's used positively of Noah. We read in the book of Genesis, Noah walked with God. His life was governed by principles and directives that came from God. So the godly man or woman does not walk in the counsel of the the wicked. Counsel is something that provides direction or advice as to a decision or a course of action. Plummer indicates the counsel of the wicked. He calls it the wicked is a term used to denote not merely his advice, but but his maxims, his principles, and his practices. As I was going through this, I was trying to think. Um, I, I think it's correct to say not every bit of advice that you or I may hear from an unsafe person is necessarily wrong or bad. I was thinking back a million years ago, sort of, when I started on the fire department in Tacoma. First year, you're on probation, so you always want to make it through that year. And, and I remember a guy told me, um, if you do your share and a little bit more, you'll never have any trouble on this job. Well, that's good advice no matter who it comes from. It, it, it kind of fits in the precious possession of a man is diligence. So this does not mean that every bit of advice that you receive from an unsaved person is necessarily bad. It always has to be brought against Holy Scripture. But the idea, as Plummer brings out, it's a term to denote not merely his advice, but his outlook, his maxims, his principles, and his practices. Psalm 106.43 says many times, Referring to God, he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and and sank down in iniquity. And with respect to this word wicked, Kyle and Dalich note, are the godless, they're the godless whose moral condition is lax, devoid of stay, and as it were, gone beyond the reasonable bounds of true unity, lacking in stability of character. So that they're like a tossed and stormy sea. Isaiah 57.20 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Job Job 10.3 
speaks of the schemes of the wicked. Psalm 146.9 says that God thwarts the way of the wicked. Proverbs 4.19 says the way of the wicked is like darkness. Proverbs 12.26, the way of the wicked leads astray. So a, a godly man or a woman's whole outlook and mindset, it's not informed by those who are godless. It's not informed by the same principles of those who are without Christ and without God. Well, a second response of the godly is, nor standeth in the path of sinners. Nor standeth in the path of sinners. To stand is to hold one's ground. It's to maintain a position, um, to be steadfast or upright. And the term way or path, that's another conduct term. has has to do with course of conduct. Uh, it's a term that often occurs in a negative light in the, in the Old Testament. I'll read Psalm 115. No, it's Proverbs 115. But I, I'll start with verse 10. My son of sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. Then verse 15 says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Proverbs 3.31 says, do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. Proverbs 3.15, the way of the treacherous is hard. Proverbs 21.8, the way of the guilty man is crooked, for, but as for the pure, his conduct is right. Uh, Proverbs 22.5, thorns and snares are in the way, the path of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. And Proverbs 15.9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Then the, the term sinners, uh, Kyle and Dalich write that they are those who pass their lives in sin, especially coarse and manifest sin. And J. Alexander elaborates, he says the word translated sinners properly denotes those who fall short of the standard of duty, as the word wicked denotes those who positively violate a, a rule by disorderly conduct. He write, Together they express the whole idea of ungodly or unrighteous men. So Proverbs um, one ten, my, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Proverbs twenty three seventeen, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Well, then a, a third response is, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, to sit is the idea to remain or to dwell, uh, to inhabit, to be settled. The the consecutive verbs here suggest that there's a progress in sin or descent into worse kinds of sin, from walking to standing uh, to, to sitting. And if you kind of get a visual here, it's like uh, walking into the wrong area in a moral sense, walking into the wrong area, wrong area then stopping, standing, staying, hanging around for a while, then I think I'm okay, let's sit down and stay for a while. So there's progress here in terms of declension into sin. The term scoffers, uh, extreme and passionate contempt, disdain springing from a person's opinion of the meanness and unworthiness of an object. Um, it's to act with insolent pride, someone who jeers, mocks, or treats something with contempt, or calls out in derision. It's associated with pride and Proverbs 21, 24, proud, haughty, scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride. Proverbs 1, how long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. 
Proverbs 9, 7 says, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. He who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. And Proverbs 14, 6 says, A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. So there's declension into greater and greater forms of sin, which includes scoffing, which is it's, it's the idea of unashamed irreverence about holy things. Um, so there's great incentive here to avoid sin and avoid things that lead to sin because it's progressive in nature. One thing leads to another. So 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Psalm 119.115 says, Depart from me, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. And Matthew Henry writes, See by what steps men arrive at the height of impiety. None reach the height of vice at once. They are ungodly first, casting off the fear of God, living in the neglect of their duty to him. But they rest not there. When the services of religion are laid aside, they come to be sinners. That is, they break out into open rebellion against God and engage in the service of sin and Satan. He writes, omissions make way for commissions. And by these, the heart is so hardened that at length they become scorners. That, that is, they openly defy all that is sacred, scoff at religion, make a jest of sin. This is the way of iniquity, is downhill. Uh, the bad grow worse. Sinners themselves become tempters to others and advocates for Baal. And the way that Spurgeon puts it, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners, which willfully violate God's commandments. And if let alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. They, they sit in the seat of the scornful. They, they have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed and are looked up to by others as masters in Belial. So the character of a godly man or a godly woman, it's marked by um, renunciation and, and rejection of sin and things that lead to sin because of the character of sin. It's progressive. It leads from one thing to another in a downward spiral. Now, secondly, and more positively, they are known by their preoccupation. First of all, by their renunciation, what things they turn away from, what things they avoid. But then positively, verse 2, they're known by their preoccupation. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The language employed indicates there's a strong transition in moving from verse 1 to verse 2. One wrote the strong adversative sets this aspect of the case into bolder relief. So in strong contrast to fostering unholy alliances, his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this positive ongoing relationship to the law of the Lord is marked by three different features. The first one is affection. Notice the language, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's a, that's a feeling of pleasure or, or satisfaction of soul. And this kind of relationship with God's word is found elsewhere. Psalm 119.35, make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Psalm 112.1, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. You see the things that kind of go together here? Fear of God and delighting in his commandments. Psalm 119 and verse 16, I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Well, the second term about the relationship to the law is perception. And what I mean by this is there's um, 
that there is a perception of the character of the law of the Lord as to its true nature. Um, this reality actually re- receives um, the focus in the original language. Uh, the law of the Lord comes first. Uh, Leupold in his commentary wrote the inversion of terms in the Hebrew word order. In the Hebrew word order places the thought of the law into the emphatic position. So his translation is, it is the law of the Lord that he takes delight. So the law of the Lord is, is first. That's what receives the prominence in, in the text. And by perception, I simply mean there, there's a recognition of the kind of God the law emanates from. We're told it's the law of the Lord. Okay, well, what is that God like? A plumber says, this is the first, he here first occurs in the Psalms, that great, dreadful, and incommunicable name of God, Jehovah. So it's the first occurrence of Jehovah in the book of Psalms. In scripture, no other name is so nearly often given to the Most High. It's expressive of self-existence, independence, unchangeableness, and eternity. It's never given to any but the true God. So there is this perception and apprehension of the law emanating from this kind of God. And that's the reason for the delighting in it, because it comes from a God who is self-existent and pure and glorious and holy. Plummer says the law of Jehovah here spoken of embraces the whole word of God then written. Uh, a part is put for the whole. The law was a prominent part of the revelation of God's will in the days of the psalmist. A good man loves the Decalogue, which would be the Ten Commandments. A good man loves the Decalogue because it's a transcript of God's moral character. And that would apply to all of, of Scripture because it's all inspired by the being of God. So Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Uh, verse 113, these are all from Psalm 119. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love thy law. Uh, verse 163, I hate falsehood, but I love thy law. Those who love thy law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So there, there's this recognition that, it, that it's all a transcript. It's a disclosure of the character of the being of God who's infinitely glorious and pure and holy. Therefore, there is an affection for the law. So you find words like delight applying to the being of God and to the word of God or to the law of God or to the precepts of God because it's a, it's a disclosure of his character and his nature and his person. So a godly man's relationship to the law, it's marked first of all by affection and secondly by perception because he or she apprehends its unique and glorious character as coming from this kind of a God. Well then thirdly, the third word would be contemplation. Affection, perfection, sustained, regular contemplation. In his law, he meditates day and night. Uh, To meditate simply is to think intently and at length as for purpose. It's to think intently and at length as for purpose. Matthew Henry, I think, really gives a good definition. He says to meditate on God's word is to discourse with ourselves, discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in it. With a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, Till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. That's very good. I mean, how do you and I, how do we know that we're meditating on God's word when we're affected by it? When there's a savor in the soul of something in Holy Scripture. That's how you know you're rightly meditating on Holy Scripture. When it moves your soul and you're affected by it. 
Plummer brings out um, the importance of this. He says another positive sign of a renewed man, he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Vain thoughts lodge in all ungodly men. The power of reflection chiefly distinguishes a man from a brute. The habit of reflection chiefly distinguishes a wise man from a fool. Pious reflection on God's word greatly distinguishes a saint from a sinner. Without meditation, grace never thrives. Prayer is languid, praise dull, and religious duties unprofitable. And the practice of meditation on Holy Scripture is greatly needed, therefore, for the good of our souls. As one put it, referring to Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, Meditation is the food of your souls. It's the very stomach and natural heat whereby spiritual truths are digested. A man shall as soon live without his heart as he shall be able to get good by what he reads without meditation. It's not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Now what I want to do in our time remaining, let's conclude with three helps to this particular practice of meditating on Scripture. So three helps to meditating on, on the practice of, of, uh, of scripture, meditating on Scripture. Number one, realize um, that the times that we live in are not conducive to this patient activity of soul. That's number one. I'm starting with the negative. Realize that the times that we live in, they're not conducive to this kind of patient activity of soul. Maybe they never have been. I don't know. But just I'm thinking about the busyness and the proliferation of distractions connected especially with the media in our time or technology. The the times that we live in are are not conducive to this kind of long, patient consideration of Holy Scripture. Maurice Roberts wrote, and this is not long ago, he says, Our age has been sadly deficient in what may be termed spiritual greatness. At the root of this is the modern disease of shallowness. We are all too impatient to meditate on the faith we profess Um, It's not the busy skimming over religious books or the careless hastening through religious duties which makes for a strong Christian faith. Rather, it's unhurried meditation on gospel truths and the exposing of our our minds to these truths that yields the the fruit uh, of sanctified sanctified character. Um, So meditation, it it takes time. A couple of illustrations that at least have kind of helped me in in my own mind that I would share with you uh, it, one is if you um, if you're up by a stream somewhere and you have a get a flat rock that's about this wide and you want to skip it across the stream and so it hits four or five times lands on the other side that, that's one thing you can do with the rock yeah the other thing is you could you know just toss toss it up and it comes down in the middle and it goes down that's the idea of meditation it's not skipping across the top it's going down deeper into holy scripture the, the other is I, I know I think last week or so I, I mentioned I used to drink some tea called morning thunder which I would not advise. Um, but when you put the tea bag um, in the hot water, the longer you leave it there, the louder the thunder gets. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the, the stronger it gets. And, and, and that's the idea of meditation. You, you stay in the word until your soul is affected by it. That, that's the idea, the basic idea here of meditation. Uh, secondly, to meditate regularly on God's word requires great resolve in light of the times that we live in and even our own hearts. To meditate on God's word requires great resolve. It's as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It takes that kind of determination. Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. Psalm 119, 78, may the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie. I shall meditate on thy precepts. 
The Puritan Thomas Watson gives advice along these lines. He said, set some time apart every day that you may be in a serious and solemn manner with God. He says, consider the morning as an especially good time for meditating on Scripture. In the morning, the mind is fittest for holy duties. The morning thoughts stay longest with us the day after. When the mind receives the impression of good thoughts in the morning, it holds the sacred die better. This is to imitate the pattern of the saints. And then a third help would be consider the suggestions of Thomas Watson for subjects for meditation, to consider the suggestions of Thomas Watson as to subjects for meditation. Now, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, so anything is a proper, in Scripture is a proper subject for meditation and to focus our soul upon. But if you want a bit more counsel about specific areas to meditate upon, um, I want to leave you with, with uh, these are 14 areas from Thomas Watson. Don't panic, we'll just kind of touch on each of these. Um, but the, the, the value of this is um, there are different themes in Scripture, and, and I believe as you meditate on different themes, it will have different effects on, on the soul. In, in other words, if you meditate on judgment or hell, it would make you sober. Um, if you meditate on the holiness of God, it will humble you. Woe is me for a man of un unclean lips. If you meditate on the sufferings of Christ on the cross in your behalf, it will empower you to persevere in the midst of difficulties. If you meditate on the return of Christ, it will engender hope in the soul. So various specific subjects will have specific effects on our soul. So here is uh, 14 suggestions in terms of topics from Thomas Watson. Number one, meditate on God's attributes. That's number one. And he breaks that down. God's omniscience, he knows all things, or God's holiness, or God's wisdom, or God's power, or God's mercy, or God's truth. Number two, meditate on the promises of God. It's the promises of remission, promises of sanctification, any promise of God. Um, number three, meditate on the love of Christ. Number four, meditate upon sin, the guilt of sin, the filth of sin, the curse of sin. Number five, meditate on the vanity of the, the creature. Our life is a vapor. Meditate, number six, on the excellency of grace. Number seven, meditate upon thy spiritual estate, thy own spiritual condition. Uh, number eight, meditate upon the paucity of them that shall be saved. That will move you to prayer. Meditate on the paucity of them that shall be saved. Not many will be saved. And number nine, meditate on final apostasy. I don't know what he means by that. Number 10, meditate upon death. Of the certainty of death, the proximity of death, it's near to us. In that connection, he says, meditate upon the uncertainty of time. And number 11, meditate on the day of judgment. Number 12, meditate upon hell. Number 13, meditate upon heaven. Number 14, meditate upon eternity. And to put this all another way, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And let us pray. Father, I, I pray that you might be pleased to take what we have considered this morning. You know our hearts, and you know each of our lives, and our comings, and our goings, and what our particular situations are. I, I just pray, Lord, you might take this enriching theme and apply it to our, our hearts and help us uh, to be people increasingly that, that know what it means uh, 
to meditate and contemplate and delight in your holy word, not just for your honor and your glory, but for the the good of our own souls and for our own true likeness to the person of your son. And so we, we pray that you would help us and give us wisdom in applying these things for your honor and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.